I could listen to that all day. Just uh, makes me want to be able to. <laughs> we need God, don't we? We need God. Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. We're going to continue this morning where we left off last week in this very familiar psalm. Uh, I suggested to you then, and I will again, that even the most familiar parts of the Bible, and maybe even especially the most familiar parts, there's probably a good reason why they're so familiar. I suggested to you it's, it's well worth our time to revisit them often. One thing I fight in my own walk and witness sometimes, maybe you do too, is this notion that if I'm familiar with a verse or a passage or once I've read it and I think I've got it, then I can or should just move on to something new. And moving on to something new is really a, it's really a cultural tendency our American culture at least teaches. Have you noticed? Often it seems to me to the point that newer is better necessarily or simply because it's new or improved or the latest greatest. The problem with that notion is that God invites us, actually commands us, out of love, that we meditate on His words day and night. That we keep His words close at all times. Because we need them. We need them, we need them like we need food and water, God says. And you know, God ought to know. <laughs> He's God. And He made us. Imagine going for days and weeks without food and water. Well, God warns us that's exactly what it's like when we go for long stretches without His Word, the Bible. It's like going without food and water. One common battle cry or witness cry of the Christian is that we want to be like Jesus. Amen? What would Jesus do? WWJD bracelets used to be more popular than they are, or wristbands, and they, I still see them from time to time, and they've been around for a long time. Well, if we really do, if we really do want to be like Jesus and do what He would do if He were facing our life circumstances, if we really want that, it seems to me we should study very carefully what Jesus is like and what Jesus did do in similar circumstances to ours. It's kind of hard, impossible really, isn't it, to be like someone and, and, and do what they would do when we don't know what that someone is like or what he did. Well, the Bible tells us all about what Jesus is like and about what He did. I suspect that's one reason why God says directly, and through the metaphors like food and water and light, indirectly, that we should keep Scripture close by and take the time to revisit and circle back around again and again to what God is trying to reveal to us 
in His Word. Now, I've got some great feedback on a challenge I gave last week along those lines that we should have our Bibles close. And of course, carrying our Bibles around doesn't make us Christian or even a better Christian, more spiritual or something, than someone who doesn't. Just like, I suppose, carrying a carrot around all the time doesn't make anyone a rabbit. I had a student this week challenge me to use a carrot as an illustration in my sermon, and so here it is, if she's here this morning. I could carry around this carrot all week. wouldn't make me any more of a rabbit than if I didn't carry it around, would it? We have to be careful. You know, just the idea that we have our Bibles and we carry it around. Look at me, I'm more holy because I have the book. But maybe an overreaction to that tendency toward legalism or form over substance is, well, I certainly don't want to appear that way, so. Carrying around a carrot doesn't make someone more like a rabbit. Or carrying around your pillow doesn't make you a better bed. Or wrapping yourself in orange peeling doesn't make you an orange. I had some fun with those. So please, I'm not preaching a form over substance or word over actions theology of paramount, of paramount importance to being a Christian is just that. Being one is your life lived as a follower of Jesus Christ. Just like being a rabbit, I suppose, depends on many, many other rabbit things. Whatever makes a rabbit a rabbit. It's certainly not this carrot. So we're not more spiritual or better than the next Christian just because we carry a Bible and read it every day. Our actions will speak more loudly than any words. However, or and, really, at some point, at reoccurring points, it seems to me, at some foundational level, it seems to me, we've got to learn and need to know what to do or how to live. And it's often so difficult to really know what to do or how to live. Have you noticed life is complicated? It's often so difficult to know what to do or how to live that it requires constant attention and reference to whatever the source of that knowledge and training is on what to do or how to live. Without a guide like God our Shepherd, without a guide like His words we might very well end up like this sheep. <laughs> Ever get yourself there? It's a very famous rocker formation. Some of you might know it. It's in Norway somewhere, I think. Sometimes I tease my students, that's where I'll take you hiking when we go to Israel. <laughs> and they'll tell you we go some places like that. And while we certainly learn how we should live directly from God, He lives in and among us in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen? And we also learn from observing and hanging out with and getting to know others who know God. It's a great way to know how to live and what to do in life circumstances. The Bible is also 
and invaluable teacher where God Himself informs, speaks to, fleshes out, gives life to our actions. The Bible is God's intentional way to write down, to put in writing His revelation of Himself to us. And so, while a rabbit isn't a rabbit simply because of that carrot, you're going to find that rabbit with a carrot pretty regularly. Eating it. And that bed is going to be associated with pillows. And an orange with its peeling. And so too, in my opinion, a Christian and God's Word. God's Word in writing and in action. You know, I was reflecting this past week again. It's an interesting and fascinating study of human nature whenever someone makes a suggestion. You ever notice that? This happens to me too when, when someone makes a suggestion to me. Someone, someone suggests I try and do something that based on their own study or insight or experience, they believe or has found is a good idea. And when that happens to me, when someone makes that suggestion to me, I find myself leaning toward at least one of two roads. I, I'll either really appreciate the suggestion or I, I'm going to tend to be offended by it. Let me try to illustrate. Picture a husband and wife getting ready to go to dinner. Okay, first of all, this is purely a hypothetical and this never really happened. Are we clear on that before I continue? <laughs> the wife comes out of the closet holding two pairs of shoes. And she says, Honey, which do you think, the white or the blue? And the husband says, in my opinion, sweetie, blue, because blue is you. And the wife responds, what's wrong with the white? <laughs> Nothing. Sometimes I feel that way whenever I suggest uh, people keep their Bibles closed. Or spend daily time in the text. So you're saying something is wrong with me? Or even, wow, did you just put me down or attack me because I don't carry a Bible everywhere or read it every day? The answer is no. Emphatically, no. I don't think any more or any less of you whether or not you carry your, carry your Bibles around everywhere you go or read it every day. And honestly, I don't feel any more or any less superior than anyone else when I have or I don't have my Bible with me, for real. But, from my heart, because I love you and I want all the best for you, in my opinion, we miss out big time on something so helpful and so wonderful and so good and so needed if we don't keep God's words close. Whether or not that's literally a Bible in your hands or literally everywhere you go. It's one thing among many I'm very proud of at West Bulls, as I've gotten to know and experience you over, wow, almost three years already. I can't even believe it. I am delighted 
with the men's and women's and youth and children's ministry here that I find emphasize God's Word, both in the book and in action. And we need to keep up the good work and continue to look for ways to know and to live out God's amazing Word. You know, to know and to go in equal measure. Now there's a good battle cry, a good witness cry, it even rhymes. To know and to go. Amen? Alright, your Bibles are open to Psalm 23. A very familiar psalm to most, but let's look at it again with fresh eyes this morning. New eyes, renewed eyes, this very old and familiar psalm. And see if God has something there that maybe we haven't quite seen or appreciated in the same way. Maybe our life circumstances have changed since the last time we've read it. Maybe we've never read it. I don't know, but there's value in circling back even to the very familiar because God's Word, even on these pages, is indeed living and is intended to be able to be that light and guide to our path even as life's circumstances change. So, would you stand, please, if you are able, or even if you're Cain, and let's... Teacher humor, it's so bad, it's good. Let's recite Psalm 23 together, shall we? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen? Amen. Please be seated. Last week, Last week we saw how the image of God as shepherd emphasizes that God provides, God guides, and He protects us. And we made it all the way into the second verse. And so that's where we'll pick up the action this morning, where David tells us that God leads me beside quiet waters. Now, as many of you know, either because you've heard about or experienced Israel firsthand, shepherd country in Israel includes very deep ravines or canyons called wadis. Say wadi. One wadi, two wadis. Say wadis. Now, you see a picture on the screen of a wadi in Israel. And that's a smaller one, that deep cut in that desert where water tends to collect from time to time. And here's a much larger wadi. It's breathtaking, isn't it? Israel is so beautiful. And normally, normally wadis are empty and bone dry, like the two I've shown you so far. But every so often, and without warning, wadis will flash flood, and the force of the water pouring through them is absolutely devastating. 
I don't know if you can see, can you make out the flash flood in the picture? Water pouring down that waterfall on the left side. Do you see it? Down into that wadi in the valley floor below. In a picture of a flooding wadi, they're really rare because it happens without notice and comes and goes like that. And even today, every year, you will read a story in the Jerusalem Post where people, including shepherds and sheep, get washed away, never to be seen again. Literally, their bodies can't even be found. It's so violent, this water, because they get caught down hiking or with sheep in a wadi during a flash flood. Literally, a a wall of water 40, 50 feet high might come barreling around one of those narrow um, canyon wadi corners. and You've got no chance to get out. There's no time. Now, it may be that that feature of Israel that David, the experienced shepherd, is singing about in this psalm. Once the flash flood passes by, the water left behind collects in little depressions and places in the rocks. And for a few days at least, a, a precious few days in that sun and in that dry land, water is there, quiet water, once the wadi flood has passed. And and God the shepherd knows where to find a safe place to take a drink, where a flood won't wash us away, never to be seen again. On the other side of the storm, in the wake of the calamity, God is there leading us beside quiet waters, not the flash flood waters of a wadi. He restores my soul, David adds next. The Hebrew word for soul here might also be translated life. Or maybe even better stated, He restores my person. God restores or revives my person in the same way someone who is hungry or thirsty is revived with food and water. Which matches exactly the very practical everyday context in this psalm. When we're hungry or thirsty... God provides our daily needs, even daily needs as simple and basic as food and water to revive us. He's our provider. He guides me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Now these paths are more than simply the right paths to the right places. In context, places where there's food and water. Although that's certainly implied And it's probably not, in my opinion, um, a moral emphasis that David intends in this verse. He's probably not talking about God leading us to live the right kind of life, although God certainly does that and calls us to that. But probably, in my opinion, the focus here, a hint to it, is that David includes for his name's sake as to why God leads him in paths of righteousness. God's name, which in Exodus we learn is I Am. One take at least on God's name, I Am, is that His name itself is the epitome of faithfulness. You can really, really, really count on something or someone that by definition or name is. Is is. I am is. 
I'm having a flashback to the Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky thing, the definition of is, but... <laughs> Time is it? Uh. God's name is, is. I mean, that's faithfulness. Is, is, by definition. You get the idea. So here, perhaps... With referencing his namesake, David emphasizes the shepherd again. And maybe not so much the paths. But maybe the emphasis here is our shepherd is faithful. We can trust him to lead no matter where the path goes. Faithfulness himself is taking us down life's path. God leads us with commitment. He is committed. He's putting his back into it, this task of leading us. He guides me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. He's faithful. He's committed to us in life. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. Most commentators agree that David is not speaking of literal death here only or necessarily, although certainly... Death is one of life's dark valleys, especially for those facing imminent death or for those left behind when someone dies. Those are certainly dark valleys. A more literal translation of the Hebrew might be, even when I walk in the darkest wadi, I do not fear disaster because you are with me. Maybe that flooding wadi picture again. One scholar writes of this verse, The sheep is not afraid when walking through a canyon, even a very dark one. The second line about the shepherd's rod and staff explains how this can be. The sheep knows that its shepherd, that in its shepherd it has a courageous and tough person who is prepared to take on whatever threatens the flock. Having God with us is not merely a feeling. It does not signify mere presence, but also action. This presence expresses itself by aggressive action to defeat enemies and thus protect the one to whom God is committed. So the shepherd's presence makes itself felt by means of rod and staff. There's some debate as to whether those words rod and staff are the same or two different sticks. Okay? If different sticks of the shepherd, the rod is more closely associated with doing battle. In Psalm 2, it's the same word, the rod, that the Davidic ruler will use to break up the nations. In Isaiah, it's the rod God uses to punish Judah. And in Exodus, it's what a man might use to strike his servant so hard that he might even kill him. So in the context of Psalm 23, it's, It's the rod that the shepherd uses to ward off attacking animals in order to protect his sheep. A staff, on the other hand, is more peaceful, I guess you could say. A staff is what the shepherd leans on for support, but it's also what the shepherd uses to gently keep the sheep in order and to to knock down olives from trees for those sheep to eat. So the comfort in dark valleys is our certainty that God will both protect with the rod and provide with the staff 
even as He is right there with us as our active guide. All three of those roles, protect, provide, and guide, in the same verse, right at the heart, right in the middle of this psalm. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Certainly God's role as protector is there given the reference to enemies, as well as God the provider giving food. But another aspect of God is especially highlighted here, and that's God's amazing hospitality. It's a rather strange picture, don't you think? Sitting down to a table of food while you, with, with enemies right there, you know, while you eat. A cultural norm among shepherds in David's day, and, and even through to this very day, is that if you are a guest in the tent of a shepherd, that shepherd, right down to the last member of his or her family, will defend you to the death, for real, should anyone come seeking to do your harm. Radical hospitality, I know. When we travel in Israel, if we're fortunate enough, we wander in and among the Bedouin community, modern-day shepherds, many of them, and invariably, without fail, we don't set this up. They have no idea when we're coming. Invariably, they will invite us into their tent, one of those families. And we just It's really quite something. There we come. A bunch of tourists and all our gear, you know, raising a bigger dust cloud than the Assyrian army did when it came into Israel. And we come, you know, whether 20 or 50 of us trudging across this desert, doesn't matter how many or how few, and a Bedouin family will drop everything to invite us in for tea and shade and homemade bread they make right there in front of us over an open fire. I j- it amazes me every time. And I sit there every time saying, I know nothing, nothing of true hospitality compared to these people who have nothing. Can you imagine a group of foreigners stomping through your cul-de-sac or your neighborhood this afternoon? There come 50 of them from halfway around the world. What would our first inclination be? Invite these complete strangers all in for tea and bread? What will they track in on the carpet? I don't trust them. They steal our stuff. Or would our first inclination to be lock the doors, lower the blinds, get your gun? And you know what? Maybe you better call the sheriff if they loiter on our street too long. Would that be our first inclination? This image of God preparing a table before us in the presence of our enemies comes straight from this culture of hospitality. It may be indeed one of the foundational reasons why God chose this culture in which to introduce originally at least His Word. And God chose this culture for Jesus to take on in His full humanity. That idea of hospitality is that strong, in my opinion. God is the ultimate gracious host. We're guests in God's tent where we're given food and water and as we'll see in a second, anointed with oil. And when in God's tent, God Himself will lay down His own life for us should any enemy come to do us harm. It's perhaps a stretch, but only perhaps 
to suggest that David has Jesus or Messiah in mind when he picked this image for God. But it certainly fits with Jesus, doesn't it? God did give His own life when our enemy, the devil, came for us to do us harm. He gave His own life through the life of His only Son, Jesus. Amen? You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. I sometimes have some fun in my classroom with this verse. It's been a couple years since I've done it, but I bring in this big jug of, of olive oil into my high school classroom. And then I start around the room and I go up to the first kid and I start pouring it on his head. This never goes over very well. Especially among the girls. You know, lots of guys, you wouldn't even notice the difference. But But the ladies not too keen on me pouring olive oil in their hair, you know. Which is, of course, the point I'm trying to make with them. It doesn't sound too great in our ears today, does it? Having someone pour oil on your head? Get that out of here. What are you doing with that? But back in the day, the Bible day, this was actually a real treat and honor when a host poured oil on your head. Israel is a hot and dry place, and if you spend any time there hiking around, you can get real nasty real fast. And so it became customary, a sign of a great host was someone who kept at the ready perfumed oil handy for his guests so they wouldn't smell so bad. This custom lasted at least through Jesus' day, as many of you know. Remember the story? Jesus is reprimanding his host, Simon, in Luke 7, when Jesus says to Simon, You did not put oil on my head, but she referring to the prostitute probably. The Bible says woman who had lived a sinful life, almost certainly a prostitute. You did not put oil on my head, Jesus says to Simon, his host, but she has pour, uh, poured perfume on my feet. I'm not sure what that looks like in today's culture. Maybe it would be like when your guests come in the door, you spritz them with a little cologne or something. Welcome! <laughs> Can you imagine if we tried that? Rats! I should have had... Ah. Okay, go out into the parking lot. I should have had uh, the greeters uh, you know, doing this to you this morning as you came in the door to church. You open the door... They... Can, can you imagine? You know, what the... You saying I stink? Or maybe we should, you know, have a little antibacterial hand lotion ready. Come on in. Some people really do this. You know, come on in. This is for your hands. <laughs> yeah, right. Narka, you think anyone might be a little offended by that today? I don't know. Maybe you give them a little gift or a party favor or something as they come in. Maybe that a mint or something. No, that's like, what? I got bad breath? <laughs> you know, we can be a pretty touchy people when others may be simply trying to help us out, can't we? We can take offense so easily, it seems to me. 
I don't know that we have anything in our culture, frankly, that compares to this biblical hospitality. And that's sad. Maybe we do something like, you know, we still give our guests the best seats at our tables. But In any event, the picture here is that God honors us with amazing, gracious hospitality. Jesus' own unique title, did you know, comes into play here? Jesus' title is, of course, Christ, Messiah. And both that Greek and Hebrew word literally mean anointed one. Did you know? A Christos in Greek or a Messiah in Hebrew is someone who is anointed. And while Jesus is certainly the Christ and the Messiah and the anointed one, isn't it humbling and amazing that God uses that picture, that same action of anointing with oil for his sheep that he also carefully reserved once and for all for his only son. He treats us truly, as Paul said, not the Apostle Paul, but Paul Wake said in Sunday school class this morning, he treats us truly as sons of God. God honors us with gracious hospitality. An overflowing cup is another picture of gracious hospitality. A more literal translation is, my cup amply satisfies. Again, I think, pointing to that notion we looked at last week of God giving us all we need rather than all we want or desire. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Many of you who are like me, north of 30 years old or 40 years old, we learned this verse when we were kids as surely goodness and mercy will follow me, didn't we? I always have to be really careful when reciting or even reading this verse from the NIV, not to say mercy. In fact, last week and this week, this morning, I think I heard, I heard a few of you say mercy. When we were in, you know, and mercy is a fine translation here as is love. Yet another translation to consider, which works equally as well, and and maybe even better given the context of this psalm, remember, Hebrew words are capable of being translated into many English words. We have so many more words in English than there are in Hebrew. So uh, the work of a translator is indeed a tough one. But another at least equally good English word here, especially given the context, is commitment. It's a sure thing that God's goodness and God's commitment follow us, the psalmist says. God's commitment, God the committed shepherd. And while we're at it, that word follow might be improved to better capture the Hebrew verb. Yes, it means follow, but it's a more aggressive follow. So some have suggested a better English word would be pursue. Or chase. The Hebrew word there is an eager, active, more aggressive following. And so David sings, it's a sure thing with God as our shepherd that his goodness and commitment pursues us all the days of our lives. There's a nice poetic balance here, a balance with enemies and dark valleys mentioned before to a sheep, those wild animals out to get them. And so while evil might be after us, pursuing us, out to get us, David sings that God, His goodness and commitment, 
is just as hard after us, pursuing us, hounding us, competing with that evil, trying to catch us too. And ultimately, at least, God will see to it that His goodness and commitment gets us safely home. Whether day by day, week by week, or and eternally home, despite the pursuit of evil after us. I came across a very short video clip that I think captures this idea of both evil and good pursuing us, competing with each other to catch us and carry us. I think, I think the clip is self-explanatory, but I need to warn you. I want to warn you so you don't miss it. I give you a heads up. You need to watch and look very, very carefully to see the good pursuing us in this clip. Okay? The evil pursuing us is obvious in the clip, but look closely, very closely, and see if you can catch the good committed shepherd pursuing us too. Look carefully. I've sat on that video waiting for a chance to show I started writing about God pursuing us and evil pursuing us and oh where did, do I still have that thing so thank you John for putting that together last night it's a great picture of God really a great picture leaves that evil leopard or cheetah what is it a leopard I don't know cheetah Leaves that cheetah there befuddled with nothing more to chase. Did you, you, what was that? I love that. And what else I love about it, it really gets the sense of God's goodness and commitment to pursue us. I mean, did you see that guy? He was working it. Let me tell you something. With his goodness and commitment, God is working it after you and me. He's putting his back into it. He's the father of the prodigal. Doesn't care if it's dishonoring. Doesn't care if it's embarrassing to his neighbors. He hitches up his robes and he runs to meet that kid. Different sermon, but same. The video cracks me up. Psalm 23. You know, that psalm has become associated with death and funerals. I mean, you'll hear it read there often. And it's appropriate for those going through that dark valley, no question. But really, as one writer puts it, Psalm 23 is more a psalm about living here and now. One that puts even daily activities, such as eating, drinking, and seeking security, in a radically God-centered perspective. I'll let another writer close us this morning. He adds this. The life of a member of God's people is lived between unfettered enjoyment of the presence of God and two aspects of the precariousness of life. 
One is uncertainty over whether we'll have food to eat and water to drink. And the other is the experience of hostility from other people. This psalm, this psalm invites people into a declaration of trust that is both extraordinarily courageous and coldly rational. And when tough times especially hit, this psalm invites people to keep trusting that God is our shepherd, holding on to God's word and promise. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for including this psalm, this song, this singing prayer in your revelation to us of who you are and what it is you want us to do. Give us that strength and that courage of sheep in the psalm to trust and to know that you are indeed our shepherd who provides, protects, and guides. We love you, and in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand, please, for the benediction, God's blessing. As you're standing, please let me remind you again, Sunday, September 20, during the service, we're kicking off announcing, celebrating, really, a renewed focus, mission, and vision for our church. We'd love it if you were here to join us, especially on September 20. And now, receive God's blessing. Goodness and commitment will certainly pursue you all the days of your life, says the Lord, until one day we all dwell together in the house of the Lord forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week. We'll see you soon. God bless.